Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the show on this Monday morning. Good to be with you. Now, I know, dear Chai listeners, that under no circumstances would I ever, ever, ever suggest that you listen to anything but Chai FM. But today I have a very special <laughs> guest in studio who I think that uh, if you're going to listen to anything else, then you're definitely going to have to listen to him and his show. Uh, his name is Mishi Harmon and he's from a podcast called Israel's Story, which tells stories of Israel that I can bet you you have never, ever heard before. And uh, they do a remarkable job uh, in bringing Israel to the world in a different uh, way and uh, a completely different lens. And so we are very excited to have him in studio today to chat about the work that he does. Mishi, welcome to Chaifem. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Now, Israel's Story is a sort of, you could think about it as a, a documentary kind of format, a radio documentary maybe, although in podcast form. It's very interesting because this is a, a, a kind of format which has only in the last few years really become very big around the world. Uh, what is it like working in an industry like that, making documentaries for, for, for radios? Well, absolutely. You're absolutely right that um, this there's been a total renaissance uh, of this kind of uh, storytelling. It almost goes back. It harkens back to the kind of uh, radio uh, that perhaps uh, older listeners might remember from from a different era, from from before there was even TV, um, of careful, um, high quality heavily researched, heavily produced uh, storytelling. But that's really, I mean, the best way to explain it is probably to say that it's like documentary films just in an audio version of it. So stories will have multiple characters and a narrator and a narrative arc and um, turning points within the story and original music that's written for it and scenes. Um, and I would say to answer your question, the most exciting thing about working uh, on Israel's story, as far as I'm concerned, is that it allowed me to really explore my own country because, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm not unique in that my, my daily life is very limited to my own little circle of friends and family, people who whom are who are pretty much like me um, in many, many ways. And Israel's story has allowed me to go out um, both socially and geographically and talk to Israelis that I would never otherwise meet or encounter. And I often think of uh, my uh, my microphone almost like a magic wand because somehow it gets me access into people's living rooms and bedrooms and homes and gardens and they want to tell me their story and introduce me to their family and their friends and i feel that this has really been an opportunity for me to understand um at a deeper level what israel is really like i think that that's quite an interesting point i mean i think you've made the point that 
the Israel that we see in the mainstream media is not a, necessarily a great representation, although it's clearly part of the truth. Uh, but also, you know, you'll also hear people talking about the startup nation, and which is a, another story of Israel. But but you guys are almost in between those two. Uh, you find the the stories in the nooks and crannies of the society that that normally wouldn't be picked up at all by any kind of media. Right. So one of the um, premises that we had when starting the show was that there are these grand narratives that exist about Israel. And these narratives at the end of the day are pretty flat. So there's a narrative which um, talks about Israel as a political um, entity. And that narrative focuses on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and on, and on Bibi and on uh, Iranian bombs and Security Council resolutions. And then there's a religious narrative that talks about Israel as a homeland for the Jewish people and the Kotel and uh, so on and so forth. And then there's, a, there's a, as you said, sort of an Israel advocacy narrative of uh, Israel being this um, Middle Eastern Silicon Valley and uh, startup nation and um, you know, there are more Israeli co- companies on the Nasdaq than any other country outside of the U.S. and inventing the cherry tomato and gays love living in Tel Aviv and all kinds of things like that. And when we started the show, we thought that none of those narratives really capture the complexity of Israel, um, which is a real living place that is complicated and is nuanced and is both beautiful and ugly and frustrating and uh, and wonderful. And we thought that our um, ability to expand the circle of conversation about Israel and people who are interested in Israel and engaged with Israel will um, be greater if we are not seen as some sort of mouthpiece of 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 the government or which we're not or um, if we're not seen as having a uh, particular agenda which we don't so as a result that kind of freed us up to tell these human interest stories that really just complicate and defy people's expectations about Israel and don't conform to what they think they already know how do you go about finding stories because one of the problems with a radio documentary you know if you're in a film documentary sometimes you have the ability of you know you can just have a long shot of someone and they never need to say anything and even if the story arc doesn't go very well for you you just can pan over the landscape and (laughs) and see what's there but you don't have any of those options in in a, a radio documentary format so you really have to find very compelling stories that have twists and turns and different characters so how do you go about digging those up and and how do you select the kind of stories you decide to tell well, that's probably the hardest part of what we do is uh, looking for stories. And we start every episode with a meeting that uh, the work on every episode with a meeting in which we come up with um, with a theme and throw out dozens and dozens and dozens of story ideas. And at first we uh, we told stories that we knew of people in our circles, uh, people in our neighborhoods, and so on and so forth. Um, We started reading a crazy amount of uh, local news, uh, of blogs, following up on Facebook posts, on tweets, things that seemed unusual. Um, As the show grew, of course, more and more people started contacting us and pitching us um, but originally, uh, we, we had, uh, we had a hard time finding stories, especially finding stories within communities that were 
removed from our own uh, identity or from our own you know existence so it was harder for us to find stories within the arab community it was fi- harder for us to find stories amongst ultra orthodox uh, jews um but slowly slowly um we we broke out into that we went on a bunch of projects that allowed us to basically go out into the street and 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 interview a cross section of israelis um according to all kinds of parameters so we read a lot we uh um you know basically i would say more than anything as you develop these story antennae um and you start seeing a story almost at everywhere and sometimes I've seen you create stories. So I remember there was a set of episodes where you sort of, I can't remember quite, it was it, was it 48 Herzl Street? Right. How many Herzl Streets are there in, in, in Israel? <laughs> so that was one of our yeah. first pro- uh, projects that allowed us to step out of our own little social bubbles and we chose the, um, we chose a, an arbitrary yet completely symbolic, uh, uh, address, which was 48 Herzl Street. Herzl is the, is the most common street name in Israel. I believe there are, if I remember correctly, there are 53 or 54 of them or something like that. And, uh, we chose number 48 because of the year in which Israel was born. And, uh, and I think out of the 53 or 54 Herzl streets, 30 something had a number 48. And we just went and knocked on the door of each 48 Herzl street from Kiryat Shmona in the north all the way to, uh, I think the southernmost one was in uh, Dimona and um and interviewed the people who happened to live or work there and that's the kind of project that allows you to really uh um basically take a slice out of Israeli society because you meet Jews and Arabs and religious people and secular people and rich people and poor people and Ashkenazim and Mizrahim and right-wingers and left-wingers and uh, basically ev- every kind of, of, of person uh, because there's something completely arbitrary, of course, about your address. I mean, talk about arbitrary. I mean, Israel's the kind of society where I, I feel like this might be a bit easier to do, you know. Uh, Israelis are kind of out there people but what were the reactions like when you pitch up on someone's door one day with a large microphone and a small team and say hi please tell us your story what is what do people say you know it's interesting for the most part and we've by now we've been doing the show for eight years we've done we're in our fourth season in english about to start our fourth season in hebrew and we've interviewed i would say several thousand people and i would say almost a hundred percent of them 99 percent of them are extremely, extremely happy to tell their story. Because if you imagine the experience of an average person, not somebody who's interviewed all the time, not someone who's used to, accustomed to being on the in the media, no one really outside of their own immediate family and sometimes not even that, no one really expresses tremendous interest in, in people's lives. So if you show up at someone's house and suddenly want to hear all about them and you want to hear about their childhood and you want to hear about, you know, their, how they met their spouse and the, the, you want to hear about the day they took their son or daughter to first grade and all kinds of, it's, it's an unusual experience for the majority of people because this is, this is the, for many people, the very first time that anyone has shown that kind of interest in their in their lives. So most people find it tremendously empowering, actually. That's very interesting. I mean, it must be a hell of a process. We, we, we tend to think about 
podcasts and radio as being to people, one person sits on behind a microphone and gives you their opinion or whatever it is. How many people does it take to create a, a story or, a, or, or an episode? How much time does it take? Um, the short answer is a lot. <laughs> um, there are certain episodes that we work on for years. Um, we just released a story that I had been following and researching for just over a year. Um, my partner on the show, Yochai, has done stories that he's been following for three or four years. Um, and it's a very, very involved process. Our team now is about 15 people. Um, and the amount of it's it's hard to imagine this when you just listen to something because uh because you listen to it and you like say oh well that was a good story or that hopefully you say that <laughs> but um you say you know that was that was interesting and that sounded good but um the amount of research that goes into this the amount of the 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 um percentage of airtime that you end up hearing as opposed to what we recorded is minuscule. So, you know, even if you hear someone on the show for 20 or 30 seconds, we've probably interviewed them for six or seven hours. Um, and most of the, sh- most of the time that goes into producing a show like this is in writing and rewriting and rewriting again, drafts of the story. So each story will go through seven, eight, nine, ten 10 drafts. Um, and, and, um, uh, writing original music for it, mixing it. Um, I would say by the time an episode has been released, um, it's been several thousand hours of work, man, man, man hours, um, till, till, till it gets to the listener. We're talking today to Mishi Harmon. He is from Israel's story. He is, uh, a producer and a founder of the show. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be back just after this. Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music, and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off-the-wall and outrageous, and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. Talking today to Mishi Harman of Israel's story. He makes documentaries, radio documentaries, about the country and then uh, and brings them to the world. Uh, Mishi, just before the break, we were talking about how difficult it is uh, to to make a, a, a story. I guess, how did you even get into it in the first place? I mean, who wakes up and the first thing in the morning <laughs> says, hell, I want to make a documentary? Um, g- completely by chance. Um I so I'm I'm from Jerusalem. I grew up in Jerusalem after the army. I went to the states uh for school and to England for grad school and um I was on this sort of academic path. I have a doctorate in in history um about a completely esoteric and unrelated topic. Um and uh many years ago in 2010 I was uh I embarked on this massive road trip with my dog, Nomi, and, uh, across America, and we were going to be traveling for 20,000 kilometers or something, and my best friend, Roy, said, listen, you're going to spend a lot of time in the car, why don't I download episodes of, um, of a podcast, an American podcast called This American Life, and I don't know if, um, your listeners will be familiar with This American Life, but, uh, This American Life is sort of the or podcast, it, uh, 
It's, it began in the mid-90s as a radio show out of Chicago and really birthed this uh, wave of, of storytelling podcasts that we now experience. So uh, they're, they're now, I was just reading, uh, they're now 700,000 active podcasts in the States alone, which is really quite amazing. I mean, if you think about the fact that 700,000 Americans host a podcast i mean it's like more people than you know drink grapefruit juice or something i mean it's it's really a lot of it's <laughs> but i mean not all of them are like your podcast that your, no. your what you do is a very specific genre right right uh, so the majority i would say probably i i don't know the numbers but i would say you know 90 percent of them are someone sitting in front of a mic in their garage and talking about something that they find interesting their favorite sports team or you know dating or whatever um, but there's also, there are also many, many, uh, highly produced podcasts, um, such as ours that have large teams and, uh, have a very, um, kind of rigorous production, um, process, which is somewhere between, uh, investigative journalism and entertainment. So obviously at the end of the day, people are supposed to learn from something, but they're also supposed to be moved and, uh, and you know some stories are they they kind of run the gamut of uh, of emotions so some stories are funny some stories are particularly tragic some are more historical some are more current um, what's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you whilst trying to make one of these stories um i th- i mean now that we've been doing this for so long many many really unusual things have happened and 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 almost every step of the way is has been a complete surprise to me. However, I would say that early on, the, the first thing that um, that really just blew my mind was realizing that we had an impact on the real world. And I think I realized that for, for the very first time. I mean, it's all it's all nice to good and nice to tell stories on the radio, and people are happy, and people listen to them, and they're interested, and so on and so forth. But then. When you hear, as we do very frequently, that our stories have compelled people to go out and do things in the real world, then that's really an unusual, um, unusually rewarding um, outcome for us. So I think the first time that that happened to us was one of our earliest episodes. Um, in fact, our second episode ever was a, a, a crazy story about an ultra-Orthodox woman from Tzfat who was... Uh, became a, da- a, a serial adopter of babies, abandoned babies with Down syndrome. And um, and it was really a, a sort of once-in-a-lifetime kind of tale. She's, she's this unbelievably inspiring woman. And as a result, we started receiving emails from people saying that they had heard the story and that they were so moved that they went out and adopted a child with Down syndrome. And we thought to ourselves, wow, this is unbelievable. We told this woman's story and suddenly there are whole things that happen in the real world that we were never intended and, and were unaware of. Um, and, uh, I think it's those, those kind of things. And that happens quite a lot. Um, cause we sh- try to shine a light on all kinds of, um, somewhat less, um, heard or less familiar areas of life. So, you know, when we tell a story of a, um, I don't know, trans uh, Haredi person, and suddenly we hear from other trans Haredi people that this encouraged them to 
come out or, you know, all kinds, whatever it is, um, that's meaningful. I was going to ask you about that because, you know, there is a sense in which, you know, this is not hard news, as you say, or not investigative. And you kind of think, well, there's been this explosion of storytelling around the world. And is it really an effective medium to get stuff done? But it sounds to me like it, it can actually be very impactful. I suppose because you're asking someone to take an hour and, and really get into the life of someone who they have no idea even exists. Absolutely. I mean, it's not news in that it doesn't report on what happened yesterday. Um, it, it's investigative in, in that, you know, we, for lack of a better word, investigate our stories, you know, probably more so than the average news outlet does. Um, first of all, we have more time. Um, and we don't have to produce, uh, a newspaper or a TV show every day. Um, so everything is fact checked up the wazoo. Um, and we, um, you know, go to great lengths. Everything is behind the scenes. This is, you know, invisible to the listener, of course, but everything is footnoted and, uh, we have links to everything. Whenever we make a claim, we'll check it. We'll have, you know, go b- to archives to make sure that what we're saying is in fact what, what we thought. Um, we do uncover, um, you know, previously unknown stories. Um, and so it's investigative in that way, but I would say that yes, absolutely. Even more so, I would say than what we call hard news. Um, this has the ability to move people to action because you can identify with a character. You can uh, put yourself in his or her shoes. Um, you get to learn at a, at a different pace and at greater length about, um, stuff that you didn't know about. Um, so it doesn't, I mean, if we're doing our job well, the hope is that it doesn't come in one ear and go out the other, but really stays with you. Now, the other element to the show, uh, which I find interesting, maybe that's not part of the traditional radio landscape, right? Is that, uh, there's also kind of a community that's built around it. You're out here to, to talk at Limud, and I know that you talk in the United States. Uh, you have live shows. I think right. you do a live show for a, a radio documentary. Explain to us a little bit about the element of that and, and what you're doing here in South Africa. Sure. So Israel Story, um, like many podcasts, really at the end of the day thrives as a community. And to our delight, the community is very large and we have listeners in 192 countries around the world, um, hundreds of thousands of listeners. Um, we sometimes uh, reach out to or are approached by listeners in all kinds of countries that you would never imagine in Iran and in Yemen and uh, in um, uh, Bhutan and uh, Suriname, all kinds of random, random places, um, which is extremely, extremely fun. Um, and yes, so in addition to the, I guess, passive um, participation in the community, which really is th- what most people do, which is that they download the podcast or listen to it on the radio and enjoy it. We try as much as possible to uh, build a community by going out and meeting these people. So yes, I, I, I and some of the other producers on the show give a tremendous amount of talks um, where we play clips from the show. We tell people about the experience of working on the show. 
Um, and we do workshops. We meet, uh, with teenagers, with, uh, you know, elderly, uh, folks, um, with, uh, groups that come to Israel, um, Jew- both Jewish and non-Jewish. Um, and about five years ago, we layered in a new, a new part of our operation, which was, um, which, which are these live shows, um, where we basically do a staged adaptation of an episode. Usually it's a new episode that we've been working on specifically for that live show. And we've toured all over North America and the States and in Canada. Um, and hopefully one day we'll come and bring this live show to South Africa as well. Um, there's an Australia tour, uh, in the pipeline now. Um, and that's basically kind of a theatrical production where, um, we stand on the stage and tell stories and the, you hear the characters coming in from in the, the audio inserts coming in and there's a live band playing, uh, playing the music and there's every, every show is a different, uh, setup, but sometimes we've worked with, um, actors we've worked with singers we've made stories into mini musicals we've um worked with uh animation artists we've worked with um uh dancers we've uh, uh comedians um and basically it's a way for to explore a certain topic and uh we've now i think maybe had upwards of 150 perhaps even close to 200 such performances um, they're almost always sold out and it's a great way for us to meet our audience, a great way for people to see the show live. Um, and, um, yeah, I hope one day to bring it to South Africa. I, I'm here, um, now, uh, this is my second trip to South Africa. I was here six years ago and this time, um, I have come to talk at, uh, the three uh, Limud conferences. So this weekend I was in Johannesburg and uh, headed now to uh, Durban and um, and Cape Town, uh, telling some stories from the show, uh, talking a little bit about the show. Very interesting. Now, if people want to hear the podcast, want to you know check out what you guys are up to, how do they get hold of it? Well, you can find Israel Story on any podcast application. So um, if you have an iPhone, your podcast application is already built in. If you have an Android, um, you just download any of the main podcast applications uh, and search for Israel Story, and you can uh, listen to us that way. You can also visit our website. It's israelstory.org. Um, and, uh, yeah, I very much hope that uh, listeners will tune in, and uh, we would love to increase our uh, our community here uh, and grow our community here in South Africa. Well, there you have it. Mishi Harmon from Israel Story. Thank you so much for being on 101.9 Chai FM. Uh, and please continue uh, bringing them to uh, our ears everywhere in the world. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Benji. Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music, and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. This last weekend, a bunch of radio producers piled into a small silver Mazda and drove off to the hills outside Nestziona. The star of the ride was three-year-old Eliana, the daughter of Yochai Metal, our senior producer. But the person who brought us on the trip was reporter Daniel Estrin. You'll be hearing from him in just a moment. 
we're off to do some field reporting, like actual field reporting, in search of Israel's national flower, the kalanit, or anemone. I checked the site this morning, and um, there's a fresh report on uh, anemones. Which is exciting, because it's like actually a little early for them, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, these are like the very first anemones that are blooming. Every winter, tens of thousands of Israelis do exactly what we were doing. Go out to the country to see carpets of floppy red anemones at the peak of their bloom. It's still a bit early in the season, but if you're a diehard flower fan, you can go online for live updates on flower sightings around the country. The sites have breaking news-style tickers and scrolling updates. That's how Daniel heard about these ones. Anyway, we arrived, took a few steps, and immediately began spotting little red flowers. Eliana was very excited. Wow, these are gorgeous. They're just... This one is beautiful. It's quite a bit of Kuraniot here, actually. We weren't alone. One woman with a big, fancy camera was taking close-up shots of the red beauties. A few people, I kid you not, had set up lawn chairs in front of a couple of flowers. Sophie Shore, one of our producers, ran into a big group of kids walking with their parents. She asked whether they were picking the flowers. We shouldn't pick flowers because they're forbidden. Oh no, they all answered in chorus. You're not allowed to pick. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and from PRX, this is Israel Story. Israel Story is produced together with Tablet Magazine, and at the very start of the anemone season here in Israel, our episode today, Sacred Plants. We have two stories, two very different stories, in two very different places, about man's relationship to plants. Act 1, Flower Power. There's one public service campaign that began more than 50 years ago and is still going strong today. It's widely considered by Israeli copywriters and advertising execs to be the most successful campaign in Israel's history. The campaign to get Israelis to stop picking wildflowers. Daniel Estrin tells us this triumphant story. Back in the old days, years ago, everyone in Israel picked wildflowers. Take one typical Israeli of that generation, 77-year-old Israela Hargil. 77 and a half. <laughs> Born 38, 1938. <laughs> you can't get much more Israeli than being called Israela. And when she was young, Israela was just like the next Israeli. She loved picking wildflowers. When she was 17 in 1955, she went on a field trip with kids from her kibbutz. We were in the Galil, the northern part of Israel. And at dusk, we settled down, and I wandered around with a friend and saw from a distance a beautiful field full of flowers, light purple flowers, quite tall. They were irises, and we started picking them up. Both of us, huge bunches of these flowers, very happy, walking further and further. All of a sudden, one of us 
looked around and saw a sign, quite a big sign, saying, Hagvul lefanecha, the border is in front of you. The Syrian border. We were behind the sign. You would actually cross the border? Yes, yeah. that's what happened. That's Israela's daughter, Tali, sitting on the couch next to her mom. You know how a kid gets to flowers. It is really enchanting. So we picked more and more, and there is a beautiful one, and there is a tall one, further and further, until we saw that sign. You went into enemy territory to pick your flowers. That's right. It. <laughs> right, that's what happened. <laughs> Wildflowers meant a lot to Israela. As a little girl back in Poland, she used to go flower picking with her parents. Then World War II broke out. She survived the Holocaust hiding in a Polish family's home, where she would take cover under the bed whenever visitors came by. Going out to pick flowers was out of the question. It was just way too dangerous. But at night, the Polish family would let her go outside to breathe some fresh air. And there, behind a fence and a gate, just out of her reach, was a garden with flowers. She called it the Enchanted Garden. After the war ended, she moved to Israel, where she could pick as many flowers as she liked. And picking flowers in Israel felt symbolic, not just to her, to her peers too, and also to Tali, her daughter. You were in awe when you saw these uh, colorful flowers. And it was an emblem or a symbol of of the re... Creation of Re, the, yeah, of the rebirth, state. rebirth, rebirth of, of the country, of, the, of, the, of the state of Israel. I mean, a Jewish country, and it was kind of proof that things are going well. You know, now I think it was a reflection of of our state of mind in a way. I remember mainly one. Morning, very early, I walked up Tali. She was about four, maybe five. She didn't want to get up. It was too early. It was around five o'clock in the morning. But I said, Talinka, you must get up. We are going out. Well, she got up. We dressed. Why did I want her at that time to get up so early? Because I wanted her to see the sunrise. Well, we got up quickly and went out on a hill and we sat there quietly watching the sunrise. And then we noticed that the whole hill was covered with wild flowers. White and bluish and, of course, greenery. Well, so we started, especially Tali, started picking up the flowers. She picked them up and brought to me, and I was sitting there, and started weaving, weaving. weaving a crown. Now, I knew how to weave a crown from the early childhood in Poland. It means I took a long piece of grass, which was quite strong, and tied these flowers up 
until we manage to have a wheel which will fit her little head. And, and every birthday I had a crown like every that. Every birthday. Every birthday. Every, every single birthday, birthday, a crown of wildflowers. This was not just their private ritual. In the country's early years, picking wildflowers was a national pastime. It was a way Israelis showed their love of the land. It reminded them of the flowers mentioned in the Bible. They would uproot the flowers to feel rooted to their homeland. Christian pilgrims were into wildflowers, too. They would buy albums full of pressed petals as souvenirs from the Holy Land. Benny Fierst, who works at Israel's Ministry of Environmental Protection, has done a lot of research about this. Nobody thought that there was a problem. Nobody thought that, hey, guys, if all of us will keep on picking flowers, there might be no left here, some uh, flowers for the next generation. And there was no thinking about, uh, about environmental protection or nature uh, values protection. Nothing. Let's pick as much as we can. There were songs about it. And everybody said, the people, even the government, promoted the Israeli education system to do it more and more. There was a, there was a competition between uh, primary schools all over Israel for 20 years, from the 1950s until the 1970s. Those who picked as much as they could, the, the most, uh, many, many flowers as they could, they got a prize from the Ministry of Education. It's unbelievable. But there was one man who did realize there was a problem. Uzi Paz. He's a wildflower expert, one of Israel's top wildflower experts. He lives in Ramat Gan, a suburb of Tel Aviv. When I showed up at his house, I walked through a beautiful garden in the front yard. But inside, there wasn't a single vase of flowers. I asked his wife, half-jokingly, if he ever brings her flowers. Absolutely not, she answered, dead serious. Right after I arrived, Uzi whisked me into his office, where his desktop computer is jam-packed with flowers. Folders and subfolders and sub-subfolders, all full of photos of gorgeous fields of wildflowers, organized according to location. Back in the 60s, Uzi helped found Israel's Society for the Protection of Nature. In Hebrew. And he likes to think of himself as the man who saved Israel's wildflowers from extinction. Well, he, together with a few other key people, he acknowledges. They realized that if people kept picking Israel's flowers at the rate they were picking them, they would simply disappear. So they launched a campaign, the campaign to save Israel's wildflowers. Step one, convince the government to make it illegal. The way Uzi remembers that campaign sounds a lot like an episode of House of Cards, political wheeling and dealing to convince key lawmakers to support the legislation. He talks about sheepishly approaching Moshe Dayan, then Israel's minister of agriculture, who, Uzi says, looked at him with his single eye and told him he was nuts to think the parliament, the Knesset, would ever outlaw flower picking. But then, just as Uzi was leaving his office with his tail between his legs, Dayan said, okay, give it a try. It was all very time-sensitive. The Knesset was about to go on recess. And in those days, if you didn't pass legislation before the break, you had to start from scratch once the parliament adjourned. Plus, there was talk of new elections in the air. 
So Uzi was afraid it was now or never. He rushed to lobby the head of a key parliamentary committee who just happened to be an old friend of his. The man had a crappy car, so Uzi used to give him a lift to the Knesset. He says that helped seal the deal. And in August 1963, wildflower picking was made illegal. But given its popularity, a law was not going to be enough. So Uzi brought in the country's leading advertising executives and asked them to come up with their best ideas for a public service campaign. One suggested putting the message on matchboxes. Meh, Uzi thought. Another suggested advertisements at the movie theater before the film started. He didn't like that much either. Then one day, on a trip to Haifa, Uzi noticed some posters the mayor had printed telling people to protect the flowers of Haifa. That was it, he decided on the spot. Posters. He printed 30,000 colorful posters with sketches of protected wildflowers and a simple message, protect the wildflowers. The posters were distributed all across the country. They were pretty and large, and people hung them everywhere, in government buildings, in health clinics, in banks, a classic propaganda campaign. Everywhere, in the in army bases, in uh, post office uh, branches, in schools, especially in schools, all over. That's Benny Fierst again from the Ministry of Environmental Protection. It was a hit. It was everybody. It, there was a black market even for those posters. People stole it from schools and from other places because it was very, very popular. It was very nice. Yes. A black market? What did they want to do with them? Black, because the, the quantity of those uh, posters was very limited. Every school, let's say primary school or high school, got only five posters to put at school. But kids wanted more. So they stole it from the walls and brought it home. Before long, everyone joined the party. The Israeli lottery printed lottery tickets with images of protected wildflowers. A gift manufacturer made a wildflower-themed card game. Newspapers ran a weekly column called Flower of the Week. Environmentalists even complained to Nomi Shemer, Israel's most famous songstress, about one of her tunes that was all about going out into the fields to pick flowers. So she changed the lyrics from 1,000 cyclamen flowers everyone gathered to 1,000 cyclamen flowers everyone counted. And if that wasn't enough, Shemer wrote another song called Waltz for the Protection of the Flora. Remember Israela and her daughter Tali from the beginning of the story? This song was sort of the soundtrack to Tali's childhood. That I remember, you know, on the radio a lot, and we used to sing this song, you know, when we were in the scouts and uh, going on trips, on the bus, we used to sing the song, and it said, you know, explicitly, you can't pick that flower, you can't pick that flower. I don't remember the words exactly. You're not allowed to pick. And uh, everybody loved that song. All these things just to show you how popular was these things? Suddenly the Israelis in the 1960s discovered 
the, there are wildflowers. They understood that it's better for them to uh, enjoy the flowers on the posters and keep them in the ground, not in their um, vase, not in at home and not picking them. It's astonishing just how successful this campaign was. In the decades since, there have been plenty of public service campaigns in Israel to get people to change their behavior. There are radio ads every single hour telling Israelis to drive safely. And still, they don't. There have been campaigns to get people to stop littering so much, to stop smoking so much. Israelis still litter. Israelis still smoke. But no one picks wildflowers. Why was this campaign so successful when so many other campaigns in Israel have not been as successful? Mm, that's the best question, I think. Um, well, we need to understand. Uh, the wildflower campaign was very unique. It was the first one. Up until the early 60s and the wildflower campaign, all the other campaigns were about the military. Join the Navy, join the Air Force. This was the first major public campaign asking Israelis to change their habits. And you know, for, for primary things, Rishoni, something which is in the beginning, has its own power. And one more thing we need to, to say, it's the, the basic thing that the, the campaign asked from the Israelis was very uh, simple. It says, you like the flowers? Great. Keep on liking them and love them, but just don't, just do it in a different way. It's amazing. It's, 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 it's an iconic campaign, you must say. It changed the Israeli behavior and the Israeli ethics of people to their land. Oh, that's a small one, right? I got it on it. Yeah, it's just tiny. Baby, baby, Kalanit. Out on our field trip near Nest Siona, three-year-old Eliana already knows the drill. Should we pick it? Yochai asks her. Eliana replies, no, you're not allowed to pick. It's been more than half a century since Israel outlawed wildflower picking. Today, for Eliana, for everyone here really, you just don't do it. Daniel Esther, and thanks to Laura Rosbrautelem. Our next story is about a very different kind of sacred plant, an actually sacred plant. It takes place far away from the anemones of Nestziona, but its beginning was right here, in the north of Israel, with this guy, Sergei Baranov. When we moved to Israel, we lived in the north, kind of hilly terrain, and uh, that was one of my habits just to look for scorpions and snakes under the rocks, turning the rocks, looking for those guys. And I had a few of them, brought them back in, into my house and kept them in a jar. And I was feeding them every day, um, grasshoppers, which my father didn't like, of course, and I had to release them. 
By the time Nathan Ehrlich met him, a lot had changed in Sergei's life. To begin with, his home country. But I'll let Nathan tell you all about that. And about how it is that they came to meet, and how they bonded over a plant. Act 2, Where the Wild Things Grow. Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music, and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous, and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM.